I'd like to talk tonight about the purification of the heart. There's a cartoon that was posted in the uh, office, lower office at Spirit Rock. It's sort of a cartoon on evolution. And it shows a fish rising up out of the sea next to a beach. And there's a thought bubble coming up from the fish's head. And it's saying, eat, survive, reproduce. Then you see the next stage in evolution, which is sort of this uh, lizard-like amphibious creature. And the thought bubble coming up out of its head is, eat, survive, reproduce. Then you see the chain of evolution going further. And there's a land-like reptile and the thought bubble from its head is eat, survive, reproduce. And then you see the next stage of evolution which is a chimpanzee clamoring about on the beach, eat, survive, reproduce. And the culminating stage of course the human being standing beyond all of them on the beach and this man standing there with this very quizzical look on his face sort of stroking his chin and going, hmm, I wonder what life's all about. Duh. It wouldn't be too hard, you know, even if you were a serious observer of the world, to look around and see that we're so ruled as a race, as a species, by our fears and our desires. Our wanting for food and sex and our fear about being able to survive or not. We could be forgiven for thinking that this really is where evolution has led us, that this is what we really are. Unless we had some kind of other perspective on the situation, hopefully a more spiritual perspective. The Buddha once summed up his teaching, and in fact all teachings, and he put it this way. He said, do good, don't harm others, and purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas, all the awakened ones. Do good, don't harm others, and purify the heart. It sounds simple put that way, doesn't it? What we are primarily about in our meditation, in being here, is this work of purifying the heart. When the Buddha made this statement, of course, he didn't use the word heart because he wasn't speaking in English. He used the word citta, which is a word in both Pali and Sanskrit that sometimes we translate heart and sometimes we translate mind. And it uh, has dual meanings. It has both the meaning of the emotional life that we normally refer to as the heart. It also has the meaning of the world of thought or intellect that we refer to as mind. If you ask an Asian where her mind is, she'll typically point here. Of course, if you ask a Westerner where uh, we feel our minds are, we normally point here. So this word citta really refers to this um, unity of emotion and intellect. But because the emotional life is so predominant in the work of purification. I want to talk tonight about this as a process of purifying the heart. As we look closely at our experience, we run into the, the basic problem, I think, that as humans we're all subject to, and that is that we try to control our experience. 
that effort to control our experience involves us in some degree of struggle. Because we want things to be one way and we don't want them to be the other. We want to come in and sit down and have the body be comfortable and not have a pain in the knee or a knot in the upper back or a clenched fist in place of the heart. We want our, all our meditations to be like uh, Sylvia's description last night of the seven factors of awakening. They should be mindful and investigative and energetic and rapture-filled, full of uh, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. We really want those experiences in our meditation, and we'd really rather they not be filled with what Marie talked about a few nights ago of the five hindrances. We have these preferences on every level of our being. And so we tend to relate to all of our experience through three basic strategies that we've learned to kind of cope with the way things are. And these are the strategies that the Buddha called greed, aversion, and delusion. He thought that these were so linked to our difficulties that he called them torments of mind. He called them the kilesas in Pali. Often translated as defilements, but torments of mind is more accurate. And we can see these strategies in the way we approach our life and our meditation both. Acting out of the strategy of greed, what we try to do is to keep pleasant experiences coming in. If we can surround ourselves with a never-ending stream of pleasurable experiences, there will be a kind of security in that. We'll always be able to be safe and protected. So this is a strategy of greed. With aversion, what we try to do is to keep anything that's painful or unpleasant at some distance from us, with the thought that if we can keep it away, then we'll protect this area that we call myself, and that will not be subject to the unpleasant in life. And the strategy of delusion is that we sort of create this veil between ourselves and our experience so that we don't have to feel it very clearly. We can use a fog or we can use a little bit of uh, stepping back, a little bit of unclarity or a little bit of confusion so that the world doesn't impinge on us quite so dramatically. These are three ways that we have of basically avoiding the hot and cold, sort of raw nature of life as it is, to soften the blows of the pleasant and the unpleasant that we're all subject to. It's said in the Buddhist text that each of us um, has a preponderance of one or the other of these strategies, that there are some people who are more conditioned by greed, some more by aversion, and some more by delusion. And so in Buddhist psychology, these are said to be the three main personality types that people get categorized into, if you're into that kind of thing. So I just thought I would read you a little bit from an ancient text. This is from a book called the Vasudhimaga, which means the path of purification. This idea is so central that one of the main commentaries is titled that. This book was written about 1,500 years ago in Sri Lanka by a monk named Buddhaghosa who tried to compile all the primary practices of his day. It was very encyclopedic, very detailed, 
Uh, gets a little dry in places. I don't recommend it as bedtime reading. It's about that thick. So I'd like to just read you a little description in case you're wondering, you know, which of these three you are. This might um, help you know. He starts by describing the walking meditation of the three types. When one of greedy temperament is walking in his usual manner, he walks carefully, puts his foot down slowly, puts it down evenly, lifts it up evenly, and his step is springy. One of aversive temperament walks as though he were digging with the points of his feet, puts his foot down quickly, lifts it up quickly, and his step is dragged along. One of deluded temperament walks with a perplexed gait, puts his foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, and his step is pressed down suddenly. Now you might also want to know what the sleeping situation is like, so he goes into that. In sleeping, one of greedy temperament spreads his bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing his limbs, and sleeps in a confident manner. (laughs) When woken, instead of getting up quickly, he gives his answer slowly, as though doubtful. One of aversive temperament spreads his bed hastily any which way. With his body flung down, he sleeps with a scowl. (laughs) When woken, he gets up quickly and answers as though annoyed. (laughs) Recognize your roommate? (laughs) One of deluded temperament spreads his bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downwards with his body sprawling. When woken, he gets up slowly saying, huh? This is the wisdom of the ages that's being revealed to you in these secret teachings. Um, You might have a little reaction to this, like the person who was skeptical about channeling, who said, uh, just because they're dead doesn't mean that they're smart. (laughs) But enough for cynicism tonight. So these forces of greed, aversion, and delusion are very prevalent in our moment-to-moment experience, in our daily life, in our retreat experience. The Buddha actually said that they are the roots of suffering. They are more or less synonymous with our human dilemma that leads us into suffering. In fact, he said to make an end of suffering without ending greed, aversion, and delusion, this is impossible can't be done. They're really one and the same. So we could say that the purification of the heart must mean to come to some degree of freedom around these tendencies of mind. This is the way out of bondage. Bondage is bondage to greed, aversion, and delusion. Freedom is freedom from these forces. I was a little surprised that some of our politicians are learning to speak the language of uh, of bondage, um, hopefully with freedom also. This was a comment from a presidential hopeful. I'm sure you'll recognize the name, J. Danforth Quayle, who said that um, Republicans best understand the importance of bondage between mother and child. I never knew he had that much depth. 
So we approach our experience with this intention of controlling, wanting things to be a certain way, and we act that out sort of mentally, moment after moment after moment. But the problem is that our experience is basically ungovernable. Our experience is the unfolding of many, many conditions, most of which are outside our control. Not all, but many of which are outside our control. And so we don't really have a way of controlling. Nobody has a handle on controlling what arises moment after moment. And if we're living from a strategy that wants to shape it a certain way, we will always be vulnerable. We really can't arrange the world to always be pleasant. That's the bad news. The good news is that it is possible to become more and more free in relation to these forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. What we need to trust in, in approaching life as Dharma practice, in bringing a Dharmic understanding moment by moment, is that our freedom doesn't rest on making life painless. It doesn't rest on removing all the difficult experiences from living. It rather rests on being free in our response to life from these reactive tendencies of greed, aversion, and confusion. So the possibility of the end of suffering isn't dependent on the outside world. It's really dependent on our inner awakening. That's really good news. Because, as they say in the Tibetan tradition, we really have two approaches to ending the painfulness of life. One approach is that we could cover the whole world in shoe leather. The other approach is that we could put shoe leather on our two feet. So which is more practical? We will never succeed in covering the world with shoe leather and removing those spikes and thorns and bumpy rocks. But we may succeed in covering our own two feet with shoe leather and being able to walk softly. Just as an illustration of this unpredictability of life, I just want to relate a story from uh, the last time I was in Vancouver. I was teaching a weekend retreat on loving-kindness practice. And at the end of the weekend on Sunday afternoon, created a little time for people to come up front who wanted to have a one-to-one uh, conversation because in the weekend there were a lot of people and I only had a chance to meet with people in groups. So about four or five people came up and we could just chat for a few minutes each. One woman came up and sat down next to me and was crying from the very first moment that she started talking. And in that few minutes she related her story to me and I understood why uh, she was in tears. After the evening, the night before, the Saturday night practice finished about five, and she went out for a walk with a friend. It was actually a woman friend who had brought her into the Dharma, a fellow meditator who had turned her on to practice. They were walking, going out for dinner, and the friend, who was about uh, 40, uh, collapsed and had a cardiac arrest and died that same evening. And the woman who was in the retreat came back the next day because she felt that it was the most 
healing place to be and carried on with her practice. But it was a tremendous shock to her system, a tremendous jolt, and also probably a tremendous uh, teaching on the unpredictability, the uncontrollability of our experience. One moment one can be walking with a friend, and a few hours later, she's not there anymore. This is the case for all of us. And even the Buddha couldn't avoid these kinds of changes. One of his chief disciples was Sariputta, who died before him, who died before the Buddha. And the Buddha said of Sariputta's death that it was like the sun and the moon had gone out of the sky with his passing. So we start to become aware of the uncontrollable nature of life in this moment-to-moment relationship that we develop through meditation. And we see that as we try to relate to it through greed and aversion, through like and dislike, these very efforts to control actually just fill us with tension. We start to see the limitations of our strategy. And we may start to see that peace comes when we're able to relax the controlling, even for a short period of time. So in the beginning, it may not be that there are whole hours or whole days that are primarily peaceful, but even these moments where the effort of greed and aversion subsides and you feel restful and peaceful and calm, and you can simply abide within the moment, is a profound pointing. It really is a pointing to the third noble truth that Sylvia talked about a few nights ago. The ending of the struggle, the ending of craving, of trying to shape things. It's a very powerful pointing to where happiness lies. Happiness really lies in this purified heart that has not taken up the struggle. In that moment is not taking up the struggle with likes and dislikes. Some of you may have heard stories about a great Indian teacher named Deepama. She was born in Calcutta and suffered a tremendous amount of grief when she was quite young. She had uh, four children and a husband In a very short period of time, her husband and several of her children died. And it pitched her into this uh, despair, kind of a bottomless well of grief that she didn't know how to deal with. She said that she basically uh, retired to her room and went under the covers for a long, long time, a year or more. The grief was so paralyzing. And then someone came along and suggested that she try meditation, that she try Vipassana in the same style that we're practicing it. So she signed up and went to a retreat with an Indian teacher named Manindra. And it turned out that she had very, very good aptitude for meditation. She said that when she first started doing walking meditation, she was really intent on the sensations in her feet, just lifting, moving, placing, And then she started to feel some friction around her foot, some sensation she wasn't familiar with and didn't expect. 
And she just kept walking a little bit, and then the sensation continued. She turned her eyes to see what it was, and it was a dog that had bit and fastened hold of her ankle. But her attention was so strong, it didn't really, she didn't waver with it. Oh, dog's biting the ankle. Hardly registered on her consciousness. So she continued to develop her meditation, went very deep, very quickly, went through many levels of um, insight as well as concentration, and was one of the most developed people that I've ever met. I got to spend about a month with her at one point. She came to America on her first trip, and I got to look after her and cook for her. And she brought with her uh, her daughter, her surviving daughter, whose name was Deepa. Her name, actually, Deepama, just means Deepa's mother. So she brought her daughter Deepa, and Deepa had a four-year-old son named Rishi. Rishi means seer, wise person, but I can assure you this boy was not that much of a seer. He was a ball of energy. And he, he was quite wild, as you know four-year-olds can be, whether in the house or out shopping in the malls. Rishi was just all over the place. And that was a situation that proved to me Deepama's equanimity, because I never saw her flicker into a moment of irritation with him. She was completely balanced, completely peaceful, completely loving the whole time. Someone asked her once what was in her mind, and she said, there are three things in my mind, peace, concentration, and loving kindness. She didn't even consider herself fully liberated. She thought she was still just on the path like the rest of us, a little further down the path than the rest of us. But she was still a practitioner. She still considered that she was developing. And yet she had this tremendous purity that to me, I I never saw waver. As Ryokan said, when your heart is pure, all things in this world are pure. This purification of the heart really transforms our relationship to life. One of the things we purify in practice is our intention. As we begin the practice, we may think that we want to shape our experience. We want to mold it to be a certain way. As our intention evolves, we become more and more accepting of a relation to experience that's not trying to shape it, but that is eager to learn from it. So that's the shift that happens where we start to open up and just are available to learn from our experience, not demanding that it be a certain way. We listen to our hearts, we listen to our bodies, we listen to our thoughts so that we can understand. And when we understand, then things are easier. Sylvia um, told me about a lovely phrase from the Jewish prayer service that uh, says something like, may we purify our hearts so that we may truly serve. I think this is a beautiful inclination. When we become purer within ourselves, we're better able to help others. The Dalai Lama himself said that altruism by itself is a noble thing, but by itself it's not very powerful. It really needs to be joined with wisdom. And with wisdom and understanding comes the freedom from conflict. And then when that freedom is there, we're really better able to touch others to help them. As the factors of greed and aversion decrease, 
It's like two pans on a scale. As these decrease, the, the, other, the opposite qualities are increasing. So the opposite quality of greed, of this grasping nature, is said to be uh, either generosity, this open-handed giving, or renunciation, relinquishment, simplicity. These are the transmutations of greed. The quality of aversion uh, kind of goes in two different directions, related but a little dissimilar. One is loving kindness. It's a basic uh, shift. Instead of having an antagonistic relation to the world, the relationship becomes friendly. Or uh, compassion, caring about others' suffering. Delusion clarifies into wisdom. Itself becomes clarity or seeing things as they are. So these qualities of generosity, of love, and of wisdom are the fruits of the purification of heart. So you could talk about it in the decrease of the unwholesome or the increase of the wholesome. Either way, it's the, it's the same thing. Sometimes it may seem like we focus a little too much on the negative here. And so I like one of the answers on the interview sheets. You know the question on the interview sheets, it says, have you ever had prolonged depression? One of the meditators answered that by saying, no, but I've had prolonged happiness. (laughs) As we slow down through our practice and listen, our experience starts to unfold in a new way, as though it wants to talk with us, as though it wants to share things with us. And basically, what hap- one of the things that happens is some of the accumulations start to unfold themselves. So what do we mean by this accumulation? Throughout life, we've had experiences that have maybe been uh, difficult to handle. Something has uh, happened either outside or inwardly. Some emotion comes, some physical energy that's difficult to accept, a sadness or fear or rage sense of humiliation or shame, and we haven't been able to allow that experience to go through us. We've been scared by it, basically. In response, we've used various techniques to shut it off, to close to it, to keep from experiencing it. When we stop that process partway through with some kind of contraction, what we do is we lock in that emotion, that we were frightened of. It gets locked in uh, often on a bodily level, gets locked into the heart as well. So after going through 20, 30, 40, 50 years of life, we all usually have some storage of of these feelings, these uh, stored, suppressed feelings. In the silence and with awareness, These energies that wanted to express themselves now have the space to do that. And so they start to come into consciousness. They start to be experienced. It may be in the beginning we just feel a little tightness in the body, maybe in the heart or the back or contraction in the belly. And as we just stay with that, with a gentle attention, it may open into some feeling of sadness or fear or anger. Sometimes that feeling will come just by itself. Sometimes it will come with a release of physical energy. Sometimes there may even be memories, 
very clear memories of a situation or an event in our lives that come with it. So we see that this can kind of lead to a cycle in practice where the uh, deepening of mindfulness and concentration lead to a steadiness of attention and a stillness, and that invites some coming forward of a stored energy. The stored energy then can, can be quite strong. The release of the energy can feel kind of chaotic. So this is a really common cycle in practice to have uh, deepening, deepening stillness and then a period of upheaval. Often one right after another. So it may feel like, gosh, I'm just starting to understand this practice. Things are finally calming down. The, I can stay with the breath. Being with it consistently feels peaceful. I'm starting to get the hang of what they were talking about. Now I understand those instructions that, uh, that John was giving the other day. You know, just stay with the body sensations. It's all coming clear now. I've got the hang of this meditation. Boy, the rest of this six weeks is just going to be a cruise ship. Then that being more deeply in touch with ourselves allows the release of some deeper material and that experience is normally kind of uh, tumultuous. It feels like upheaval. And then it's very difficult to connect with the breath. A lot of emotions, a lot of thoughts, a lot of physical energy, just racing, racing, racing. And we think, what did I do wrong? I had it just yesterday, or just the last sitting. I shouldn't have let myself have that daydream about the vacation that I'm going to take in the summer. I shouldn't have allowed myself to linger over tea at lunchtime. I did something wrong that's making all this happen. But it's really not like that. Actually, your steadiness is what gave the space that this stored material could come into. So it's a really natural part of the practice. It may feel in that time of upheaval like the practice is just blown to the four winds. Concentration? Never knew it a day in my life. More than a breath at a time? Can't get to it. Just not happening. This is a time when it's easy to feel discouraged. But if you just maintain your steadiness, and it may just be willing, being willing to sit and walk through the disturbance, what you'll find is a little bit of time goes by, oh, the connection with the breath comes back. Oh, calmness is coming in again. Oh, feeling that steadiness again. And the practice more or less puts itself back together. So often we're going through an intensive uh, retreat. We're going through these cycles where the practice really comes together and it feels the best it's ever felt. It feels so easy it's effortless at these times. This is when you start thinking about um, signing up for the three-month retreat in Massachusetts in the fall or you're going to go over to Burma and ordain as a nun the next time you have some time off. And immediately following that can be what seems like the worst period of practice you've ever had. And these cycles may keep going. And of course, in those really difficult times, is my car still running? Am I going to be able to get a getaway vehicle together to get out of this place? Uh, Do I need to call my house sitter to tell him to vacate because I'm coming back tonight? All plans to leave start to come in. This is such a good training ground because they both present real challenges. 
in the periods where practice seems easy and flowing and effortless, we really get to find out what the sweetness of meditation can be like. We get to taste some of the fruits of the sustained attention that we've put in. We know that potential of uh, real peace and real clarity, being able to see things as they truly are, so rich and satisfying. But we also have to be aware, sometimes the biggest curb to mindfulness is pleasure. I don't know if you've noticed this. When I sit down at lunch and I take the first bite of a really good meal, I space out like no time else in the day. As soon as I get a really pleasant taste, I forget to taste anymore. It's like, oh, this is so great. Mm, mm, mm. And I'm off somewhere in some pleasant thought escapade. The same with sitting. When the calm and the peace and the concentration and connection to the breath arrive as these unexpected visitors, we might think, this is what meditation is supposed to be like. Now I don't have to work so hard at being with the breath. I can just settle in and enjoy this because it's happening naturally and it feels so good. It's really important, even in times that feel good, to sustain the mindfulness moment by moment, still to put in that effort of connecting with the breath, with the sensations. When you get into the tumult, then it feels like nothing can connect. It feels like the meditation has dissolved. What's the point? Why should I try? At those times, it's still helpful to keep coming back and connecting with the present, but you may not be able to do it in a very precise way. Connecting with one breath may not be possible. Seeing one thought may not be possible because they're going by like a waterfall, too fast, too furious. So at times like that, that's okay. Connect with a more panoramic understanding of the situation and just feel it as restlessness. Feel it as confusion. Just make space in the mind for this experience of tumult, of the waterfall. And then you're connected with your experience just as it is. Don't worry about being precise. Trust that if you just keep staying present, the calmness and balance will return. And really what you gain from all those cycles again and again is a greater and greater sense of equanimity. Seeing the pleasure and the pain, the easy times and the hard times as just two halves of what meditation has to offer. And you start to trust every time you get lost, you know you'll get found again. And every time you get found, you can be pretty sure you're going to get lost again. And it's okay. Both halves of that cycle are all right. So don't, you don't need to feel that you have to hold on really tightly to one or that you have to be afraid of the other. And start to recognize that these are kind of the two faces of retreat practice, of meditation as it unfolds in its depths. And we gradually over time just get more and more trust that that process is a good one, that it strengthens us, that it heals us, that it opens us, that it purifies us. This is from Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. 
Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. This is so true. Each can be seen as a guide from beyond because they are our opening. When we turn our attention to the breath of sensations, to the present moment, we get one of two outcomes. We either get the connection to the present moment with clarity, or we get an obstruction to that present moment awareness. Either one is just where we need to learn, is just perfect in that moment. So being open to both is really, really helpful. Now, some of these accumulations come in a way that we struggle with them. Mostly they come in a way that we struggle. And sometimes we struggle in a way that we actually draw the noose tighter. And this is when we're into a situation that's described as a knot. And a knot is basically created when there's a kind of energy coming up in us that we can't open to, but we meet with the same kind of response. A good example is fear. If fear comes into your practice and you're afraid of it, what happens? The fear builds into kind of a crescendo. It's created this knot of fear that we don't see a way out of. I was doing a long period of metta practice last fall. And doing the metta practice intensively over a period of some weeks is basically a concentration practice. Insights come also, but the, because you're returning to the phrases and the metta again and again, it's largely strengthening the factor of concentration. I talked to a lot of friends who'd done the practice, I'd done it myself, and some of my friends, just their concentration just seemed to keep deepening in a very steady and gradual way. And my experience had always been that my concentration deepened for a while, and then I'd go through this period of upheaval, and then it would settle down, just the cycle that I've been describing. And I started to notice that what happened, because I wasn't so comfortable, familiar with the metta practice, when I got into the upheaval, period, I couldn't trust that it was okay for that to happen. So when I got agitated, I got worried that I was getting agitated. And of course, that just made me more agitated. So I really struggled with it. Over time, I started to trust, oh, that agitation will pass. It's okay. Just let it come and let it go. But as long as I was getting worried about it, I was just prolonging it. So in working with these uh, uprushes of energy from accumulations or from knots, the skillful thing is just to be with them in a very open and accepting way. Sounds easy. I know it's not. If we can be there with a clear attention that's not moving toward it, why would we move toward it? Because we can make of this untying a project. We can actually see our meditation as being primarily about the loosening of these accumulations. Then we might get invested in 
the uprushes of energy. We might get invested in the knots even and think that, well, if I'm having the opening of the accumulations in my practices unfolding as it should, and that can become our central purpose. Actually, the unfolding of the accumulations is just a byproduct in meditation. It's just a byproduct of awareness. It's not the central path to liberation. So as long as we're involved in that as kind of our main project in meditation, then we might miss out on the deeper pointings to freedom, to the essence of liberation. Also not moving away. And of course we tend to move away because these are difficult energies, the energies of anger or fear or sadness or shame. So we want to find that middle path that's not moving toward, out of making an agenda, that's not moving away out of resistance or fear, but an awareness that can clearly be there with these difficult states of mind and body and just allow them to express themselves. Someone came in today to an interview and was talking about a real shift in relationship to these energies. And the person said, you know, I struggled with these uh, upheavals for a long time and I finally got it that I could just be with it in a really spacious way. He said, now it's like the lights are on, but nobody's home. There's just the energy unfolding itself. And when that happens, you can trust in the Dharma to unfold it in the most skillful way possible. The lights are on, but nobody's home. If these difficulties arise and we don't make a big deal out of them, we don't hold on to them, we don't cling, we could say that they self-liberate. They arise, and like everything that arises, they pass away. This self-liberation is described in one tradition as like a snake that's coiled up and just uncoils itself. It's also described as like writing on water. It just passes without a trace. No big deal. Really easy. But if we get involved in grasping, either because we're resisting or because we want to fix, fix things and help the project along, then we get tangled. That's how the tangle gets created. Well, basically, in relation to these states, to be there with full awareness, a keen awareness and interest is crucial, but then to kind of take the hands off the steering wheel and surrender. This movement of surrender is a movement that we can do in any moment of practice. Krishnamurti had this beautiful phrase. He said, the first step is the everlasting step. And I think you could say that this movement to surrender is an everlasting step in our practice. Because when we get out of the way, then we put our our whole trust in the hands of the Dharma. And the Dharma knows what to do. The Dharma knows how to unfold the situation. So in our practice, can we, can we start to know when we're reacting to what is with a trying to control through greed, aversion, or delusion? Can we also know the states of non-greed, of non-aversion, of non-delusion. 
Be aware of how they feel. Be aware of their impact. There are really simple teachings around these states of mind. I was visiting some friends over Christmas, and my friend who's a meditator called uh, her daughter and then spoke to her granddaughter. And the granddaughter came on the phone and said, Oh, Nana, I got a lot of really good presents this Christmas. There, you should see it, Nana. A lot of presents under the tree. And her grandmother said, Well, now that you have all those, does that make you happy? Or do you feel like uh, you want more? The little girl said, Oh, Nana, I'd like to have more. And her grandmother said, Oh, that's too bad. And the little girl said, Well, why, Nana? Why do you say that? And her grandmother said, Well, haven't you noticed that when you are grateful for what you have, you're happy? And when you want more, you're not happy. And the little girl said, Oh, Nana, that's true. That's true. We can learn the same lesson right here. When we're really grateful for what we've got, there's peace and contentment. When we want more or we don't want what we have, there's suffering, there's unhappiness, there's conflict. It's really important not to be too biased to one of these sides or the other. You know, if we've had a lot of difficulty in our life, we're often biased to the side of the suffering in life. We look for it, we're afraid of it, we kind of keep our antenna up for it. We tend to see our lives in those terms. We tend to tell ourselves a story about life in those terms. And when our whole uh, concept of practice is turned that way to suffering, we miss the moments of joy and of peace. You may walk out of the meditation hall and have a moment tonight of just seeing the moon come out from behind a cloud or appreciating the kind of intimacy of the little lights that mark the trail down to the dining hall. Sometimes it feels to me like a little alpine ski village up here where we're so secluded from the world. So there are these moments of joy that come in with the beauty of the nature here, the communion of sangha. And if our focus is just on the unpleasant, on suffering, we don't tune into those. We actually miss the peace and the joy and the happiness that's in a lot of moments of our life. You can also have an approach to practice which really focuses overly much on freedom. The view may be that uh, our innate nature is free. Anything that doesn't relate to that view of things, I'm going to discount or push aside, or that's not really it. And in that view, one may never really come to terms with the suffering elements of life. One may never really understand where one is getting caught in life and what tugs at the heart are keeping one in bondage. It's really important to be open to both the periods of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, generosity, of loving-kindness, of wisdom, as well as the difficulties. This really came home to me at Yucca Valley some time ago. I was teaching down there in the desert, which is a beautiful place to practice. I know a number of you have spent a lot of time down there, very spacious um, and beautiful setting. And I was seeing um, someone for interview. I was teaching, but seeing someone for interviews who was a friend, and I happened to know that there had been a very difficult situation in my friend's life 
in this last year. And as he was going through the retreat, he would go through periods of calm and quiet and stillness and joy. And then again and again, this difficult situation would come back into uh, his memory and he would contract in fear and anger and hurt. And his peace and concentration would sort of fall apart. And he came in and he told me about this cycle and he said, I think I need to do more concentration practice. I think if I could um, just uh, focus a little more, I could keep these other thoughts from coming up. What do you think? And I said, I think I would frame your practice a little differently. I think I would frame it in a way that lets the vastness of your awareness hold both the periods of peace and joy and also understand the times of conflict and pain and not to prefer one over the other, but to have this very panoramic and global awareness that's able to hold both with some equanimity. Not complete equanimity, of course, but just some more sense that either side of that is all right to be really open, or then also to allow the contraction. I said, it's really the choiceless observation of suffering and of freedom that lets us understand them, and it's the understanding that lets us access freedom more and more. He said, well, that sounds like a different take on practice. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. So he wouldn't say what he was going to do. So he came in for another interview about four days later, and he said... "Um, I had a really interesting experience. I went out into the desert and I just sat. And as I was sitting there, a turtle walked up to me. And he just sat down right in front of me. And he was just looking at me. And you know, in the desert they've got these pretty big turtles that wander around. And it's quite a treat to be visited by one. I've never been visited by one. I've gone looking and seen one, but I've never been visited by one. So it was almost like a totem. Uh, animal coming to visit him. And he said, the turtle was just um, sitting there with his head out looking at me. And I would look back at him. And I felt very friendly. And I decided to reach down and pet him. And I reached down very slowly. And yet, just as my hand got closer to him, his head withdrew back into his shell and he closed down. So I backed up. And I just sat and watched for a while. And then in a minute or two, his shell would open, and his head would come out again. He'd look at me a little longer, and I'd get really curious again, and I'd reach my hand out, and his head would withdraw into his shell. He said, at that moment, I got it. Opening and closing are just part of life. The turtle is showing me that being open isn't always the right way to be. Sometimes being closed happens or is appropriate. And I saw that with my own heart. I need to be allowing of these cycles where my heart opens and my heart closes, and it's all just a part of the natural flow. So he shifted into that more allowing kind of panoramic relationship to the openings and closings, and he said that it brought him a much deeper sense of freedom in relationship to them. So remember that life is relationship. There's our present moment experience and then how we're relating to it. 
And these two factors keep interplaying with one another. They condition one another. In tuning into our present moment experience, we may find sometimes it's nice, sometimes it's not so nice. Look at then how we relate. That's the more important piece. Was sitting, again, uh, extended period of retreat. One of my teachers was Sharon Salzberg. And Sharon said something in the Dharma Hall one day that I'd probably heard a dozen times before. I'd probably said a dozen times before. But she said it and it really struck me. She said, it doesn't matter in this practice what you're experiencing. What matters is how you relate to it. That's a really radical statement. And that is the view of this meditation. It doesn't matter what our experience is, whether it's joyful, delightful, happy, open, or if we're experiencing some fear, some anger, some sadness, some terror. The important thing as relates to the practice is, how are we relating to that moment? If we can bring into that moment this uh, warm and clear attention Because that's really what mindfulness is. Mindfulness truly is free of greed, aversion, and delusion, and therefore has this basic warmth, has this heart quality to it. That's the transforming factor. That's the liberating factor. It actually doesn't matter so much whether your practice of mindfulness is developing on difficulty or developing on ease. The Buddha said there are four different types of meditators. There are ones who go swiftly with pleasure. There are those who go swiftly with pain. There are those who go slowly with pleasure. And there are those who go slowly with pain. I will tell you right now, I'm in the fourth category. It really doesn't matter because the liberating factor is this open-hearted attention that we bring to whatever our experience is. Why is it liberating? This is a question that really grabbed me after a while. Why is this open-hearted attention fundamentally liberating? The clearest way I know to say it is that it is the functioning of our Buddha nature. We've talked a few times about this Uh, deep dimension of ourselves, which is timeless, as John was saying this morning, which is unstained and unsullied, which is fundamentally pure, pure beyond any possibility of impurity. The activity of this Buddha nature is mindfulness. As we become mindful moment after moment, What we are doing is basically giving birth to our our own awakened nature. We are bringing forth the awakened mind moment after moment after moment. When we shine it on an area of difficulty, we transform that moment. Even though the experience in the moment may be of sadness or hurt or anger or fear, when we meet it, with this warm, clear attention, we're bringing the wholesome alive in that moment. So you cannot say that a meditator who's working with mindfulness 
is only in an unwholesome state. But the awareness itself is a powerful, wholesome element in that moment and transforms over time those feelings. As we bring forth more and more this open and spacious, essential nature, all the accumulations, all the knots, all the karmic conditioning basically dissolves in it. The Buddha said that the fetters, the difficulties, rot in mindfulness. The same way that uh, the ropes and sails of a seagoing vessel rot in the sea air, the salt water, the wind, and the sun. They simply decay because this nature is so fundamental that nothing can stand up to it. It has the possibility of absorbing and dissolving every structure that it's presented with. This is the alchemy of our practice. In meeting these uh, difficult emotions, difficult states of mind, bringing this wholesome and warm attention to them, we transform that difficult moment into a moment of activating the awakened nature. This is pure magic. How can we bring forth enlightenment in the middle of difficulty? Just by paying clear and warm attention, moment after moment. So we find our freedom not in getting rid of the difficult emotions, but in bringing out this deeper dimension of ourselves, which is open, accepting, spacious, and friendly. Until there are no more corners of the mind that we can't meet with that kind of openness and that kind of acceptance. In the mind of the Buddha, there are no more rough edges that can't be open to. For us, every rough edge is another opportunity to open and move one step closer to Buddhahood. As one of my Tibetan teachers said, the sacred point of our practice is the liberation of confusion. I'll close with a quote from Gampopa, who was a disciple of Milarepa. This is a prayer, and it doesn't so much matter who it's directed to. It could be directed to the teacher, it could be directed to the Buddha, it could be directed to the Dharma, or anywhere you feel appropriate. These are called the four blessings of Gampopa. Grant your blessings so that my mind follows the Dharma. Grant your blessings so that my Dharma practice becomes the path. Grant your blessings so that the path clarifies confusion. Grant your blessings so that confusion dawns as wisdom. Let's sit for just a moment. 